Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival, and you're listening to a 2017 festival podcast, proudly powered by Spark. Lincoln in the Bardo is the long-awaited, genre-busting first novel from Syracuse University professor George Saunders, a multifaceted writer with a back catalogue of acclaimed short stories and widely considered to be one of the best contemporary writers working today. At the dawn of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln is grieving the death of his 11-year-old son Willie, who is trapped in a transitional realm in Tibetan culture, the Bardo. In New Zealand, for the first time, Saunders talked with Paula Morris about his work and life and some of its weirder moments, travelling in Africa with Bill Clinton, the nun he loved, the Academy Awards. We hope you enjoy this session. Kia ora everyone, kia ora tato, good afternoon. I'm Paula Morris. It's my privilege and delight today to be here with you and with George Saunders. And we'll have time at the end of the session for questions from the audience. And you know, there are various aisle mics that we pointed out. George will be signing books in the foyer immediately afterwards. Now, please make sure your phones are on silent, even if you're busy on social media. And for those of you more interested in the other, hashtag AWF17, the conference that's going on in Germany. Here's a quick update from its Twitter feed. Uh, yesterday, Sie haben am Außenwirtschaftsforum eine spannende Rede über KMU und deren Erfolgspotenzial im E-Commerce gehalten. Okay, so. Now thank back good, to thank us. goodness. <laughs> I'm really pleased. Uh, now, George Saunders has dedicated many of his books uh, to his wife, Paula. So for years, I've been pretending that they're really dedicated to me. <laughs> thank you. George is one of the great contemporary short story writers. Each new collection a cause for celebration. Seek out his stories and essays wherever you can for the clarity and verve of the writing, the inventiveness, the compassion, the insight. If you have not yet read stories like Sea Oak or The Semplica Girl Diaries or Civil War Land and Bad Decline, then you have many, many treats in store. And now George has written a novel, Lincoln and the Bardo, that reminds us that the novel has always been an experimental form and that everything we produce as writers is a puzzle we have to both create and solve. Uh, I realize I'm about to say that it's a funny book, but when I give you the description, it doesn't sound funny. Lincoln and the Bardo said in 1862, most of its action takes place in one night in a graveyard. Uh, President Lincoln is an isolated figure, losing the war, criticized for his leadership, and one of his young sons has just died, and he goes to the crypt where the body lies awaiting burial to mourn. And I have to say it's an extraordinary and engrossing book. It is funny, despite the synopsis I've just given. It's dynamic, like much of George's work. And at the same time, it's a novel of profound humanity and historical insight with a transcendent and truly moving climax. It's a story told by ghosts that explores what it means to be alive, to be human, and to find the courage and humility to take the next step. So please welcome to Auckland once again, George Saunders. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to ask you to just read that again, over and over, <laughs> for the entire hour. But thank you so much. Your profound humanity. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to begin by saying I read a headline in the New York Times that I thought was really funny. It read, George Saunders, famous for futuristic short stories, hits number one with a historical novel. 
And I wondered, is this what you've been plotting all along? I mean, did you look at Hilary Mantel and thought, I want a piece of that? No, no, I didn't. I, I, don't, I do very poorly at plotting. I just, uh, I, I found out early that I have a tiny little wedge of talent, and I, and I keep, um, through my whole 20s and 30s, I kept missing that wedge. So, so I uh, kind of, you know, hit my stride with one short story when I was about 32. And then since then, I've just been thinking, don't, you know, don't overthink it. Just uh, try to find the energy in whatever you're working on and trust it. It'll be the right length. And so, so kind of like, you know, when you're driving in a car, you can't really look beyond the headlights. So every work is just that little wedge of light and, you know. Now, I read that you had originally thought of Lincoln and the Bardo as a play. And I wondered why and then why you changed your mind. Yeah. Well, we, we, uh, I heard the story about Lincoln and his son 20 or 25 years ago. And I... Uh, I just couldn't imagine an overlay between my fictive voice and that material. You know, it's, it's tragic, somber, emotionally rich material. And at that time, especially, I was writing kind of these fast, almost futuristic, kind of funny stories. And I, you know, I just did that writerly thing where I thought, that's a great story. Ooh, but not for me. You know, I couldn't quite figure it out. So uh, I thought, well, maybe I'll do it in a different form. And a play, somehow, I had the false idea that a play would be somehow easier or be... Uh, you know, would allow, allow it to happen. But I tried it, and I, I think I had several hundred drafts of it. And at one point, at the end of every year, I kind of look at what I have in progress and make notes. And I had this big pile of play manuscripts, and I just literally wrote, run away, <laughs> don't try it, you know. So, so I, I, it was mostly just the, the material seemed to demand a 19th century diction. And I thought, oh, how do I, you know, how do I do that? And so I just kept shying, shying away from that, you know. Something you just said is very interesting, hundreds of drafts, and you print them out? Yes, yeah. yeah. I, I kind of, uh, you know, I, I start with a clean draft, and I mark it up during the day, and then come in and make several new copies during the day, and then the goal is to, at the end of the day to have a nice clean one for the next morning. But I found early on that I, I'm not a natural writer, so the first drafts are always pretty crummy. And then, but when I realized that, it was kind of a liberation to say, being a writer doesn't mean your first drafts are wonderful. It just means, actually what it means is that you're willing to say, this is crap. Let me go and try again tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Uh, so yeah, so I just go through hundreds, you know, actually probably thousands of times, uh, making kind of micro adjustments each time, you know, just a little uh, questions of taste. Is this word better than this word? Am I better off with this phrase taken out? And the really wonderful thing is that if, as you do that over these hundreds of drafts, the thing starts to get smarter than you are. You know, it gets kinder than you are, funnier, sharper. Uh, I have a certain, in my actual personality, kind of a Pollyannish tendency. Uh, that gets edited out, you know, hopefully, you'll, you'll hope. Uh, so so it, for me, the, 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 uh, the process of realizing that writing really is rewriting, and that you, not only is it better for the work, but it actually expands you as a human being. You know, if you, it, in a sense, uh, the fictive moment is sort of like in, in uh, is it the matrix where time slows down? You know, so you describe a scene, and then as you go back to it hundreds of times, you, you, the better angels of your nature kind of get a chance to look at it again and say, is that really what you mean? Uh, are you being uh, unnecessarily ungenerous to the character? And the really mysterious thing, in my experience, is that that is all tied up with improvement in language. So the more you concentrate on making the language rich and communicative and intimate and f maybe funny, uh, energetic, the, uh, the moral register of the piece actually comes up. Now, I don't really understand how, why that should be the case, but I have a kind of a little example I always use, kind of a cartoonish example, but if you start off and write down, you know, Frank was an asshole, 
Okay, that's a, it's an English sentence, you know. Uh, but the gods of fiction don't like it. Uh, one, because it's a little snarky, and two, because it lacks specificity. So the gods of fiction say, okay, how so? And you say, oh, okay, all right. Uh, you know, Frank snapped at the young barista. And the, the gods of fiction are a little pleased, and they say, tell us more. You know, and then you say, oh, okay, he snapped at the young barista who reminded him uh, of his wife, his dead wife. And, and suddenly, just in that little motion of revising, you've gone from a picture of Frank who's well beneath you, and you're kind of kicking him a little bit, uh, to a place where he's actually a pretty complicated guy. You know, he, he was mean to the barista, but because he was so capable of love, when love was taken away from him, he turns into a different lesser. So that's, I guess, an example of what I mean. You can revise yourself up into a higher state of, of awareness, I guess. I wanted to ask you about the ghosts who are so important in this book. Now, the, the, your first uh, story collection, Civil War Land and Bad Decline, and the, in the first story, the title story, you have ghosts who are characters who only the narrator can see. Fantastic story, really, really great. And it ends very gorily, which yes. is also enjoyable. Um, <laughs> But in this novel, you have them as the narrators. I mean, they are your supernatural Greek chorus, in a way. Why did you decide on that? You know, uh, the, truth, the truth is that I, I decided in this iterative way that I'm talking about. I, uh, I think in a, in a certain way, the, the writer's job is to not suck, basically. You know, you, 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 get to, you try a certain approach, and you find you are not liking yourself in that mode. So in this book, there was a, a, a certain phase where I thought, well, maybe I could write it as a kind of Gore Vidal-esque third-person account. And I tried it, and it just was boring. Boring for me, and I'm sure it would have been boring for the reader. So then you, I think that one of the, the prime artistic moves is to lurch away from that which offends thee, you know? So if you're writing in a dull way, you go, oh, I don't want to do that. And your mind looks for a way that would be less dull. So for me, the idea of uh, monologues was interesting. I don't, I don't actually know why. That's the truth, you know? I, I, um, you can construct arguments after the fact, but at the time, it was just several weeks of trying different things, not finding any satisfaction. And I'd written, many years ago, I'd written a novel that I'd never finished that was set in a graveyard. And it was uh, in the early days of chat lines. And I just loved the way those looked on the page. You know, someone would ask an incoherent question with lots of misspellings. Someone would fail to answer that question in an equally incoherent way, and then the insults would start flying, and it was kind of beautiful. Um, so that, I had that in mind from maybe 1996, this idea of a, uh, a book of ghosts cross-talking. So then at one point when I had exhausted this third-person route, I just thought, oh yeah, that's perfect. Just ghosts firing back and forth, you know. And you've also got interspersed in that history chapters, which are also dead voices in a way. I mean, a lot right. of it is little bits of history. Some of it's true from actual books, some of it's from made-up books. So right. I have many questions about this, but the first is, when did you decide to make up versus use something real? Right. I, I, put, the, I put those in there first because the ghosts, the ghosts are a bit like dream sequences. You know, you can do whatever you like. I had a, a writing teacher who said, George, in your career you have three dream sequences, so don't use them up, you know. <laughs> yeah. So I think the ghosts are like that. The, the reader can start to feel that the, the writer is just sort of riffing or showing off. And it, so at some point I felt I needed a historical spine to kind of give the backstory. So. I uh, typed up a bunch of uh, all the main historical accounts of these events, and I just started cutting them up with scissors and kind of getting on the floor and arranging them into coherent chapters. And then there was that moment when you're you know, a fiction writer where you, uh, you're reading the facts and you think, hmm, this would be a lot more interesting if 
I added to it a little bit. Uh, so that was, I mean, in some ways an interesting moment because before that I think I had some idea that if you're writing an historical novel, you have a certain uh, allegiance to truth, to, to what was Lincoln actually like, what was the graveyard, how was it set up, uh, the Civil War facts. And at that point the novelist took over and I thought, no, the point of a novel is not to present facts, but to make a magical, transcendent moment at the end. That's really the reason. So then as I got into these historical sections and thought, I can make this more beautiful and more meaningful by supplementing them, uh, then it, it sort of a door flew open. I thought, oh, that's the real purpose. And the, you know, then at that point I started uh, kind of disregarding the actual geography of the graveyard and making up my own graveyard. So it was kind of a... a, a it actually reminded me of back when I was a young writer and that f the thrill you get the first time you make something up that's truer than reality, you know? You blunder into something and suddenly a story that was supposed to be about this asserts its will and is about this other more interesting thing and you did it. Are you not quite sure how it happened? And, and I've had the experience of looking at that and saying, yes, that's who I am. I, I'm that person, and I believe that. I didn't know that I believed it. So I think that's the thrill you're always hunting for is that, you know? And with the historical accounts you use, often they're contradictory as well. Yes. And, I mean, even describing the color of Lincoln's eyes. Yes, and those were, those were true. There, you know, um, there were, Lincoln's eyes were described as, I think, five or six different colors by people who knew him personally. So I thought that was kind of, well, this was before alt-facts, so I, <laughs> I didn't know that word at that point. But, you know, the idea that um, reality is actually, it, it really is morphing all the time. There, there is no fixed Auckland that's out there right now. If you walk through it and I walk through it, they're, they're totally different places depending on the state of our minds at the time. And then to complicate that further, if we get together 10 years from now, uh, which I hope we will, or sooner, and, and we compare notes, we'll find that we don't even agree on who is sitting on the left or the right. So I, I think that's just kind of a beautiful uh, component of this larger notion that uh, if we're gonna live in the world fully and morally, we have to recognize the limits of our own perceptions. You know, these minds that we have are not actually that great. I mean, they, they work, they're, they're functional, but when you compare the, the puniness and the, the limitation and the habituality of the mind with the vastness outside, uh, you can see that these are very inadequate coping tools that we have up here. Uh, so that's okay, but we should always, I think, ritually be reminding ourselves that our perceptions are a little tricky. Uh, and we, we know this because we behave badly, you know? If, I, th I think, I, I think if we could really understand the vastness and, and our actual place in it, we'd be much more uh, loving, probably, patient, kind, all these things, and we get glimpses of ourselves like that, but then the habitu habituality and the smallness of the perceptual mechanism reasserts itself. So I think art is one way that we can kind of play at reminding ourselves of, of those things, and that part of the book was really fun for me, just to say, yeah, uh, you, you have a, a, a narrative authority, but let's remember to undercut it every now and then just as a sort of ritual humility. The ghosts are in denial. As, uh, they're in denial that they're dead. Yes, yeah. They think they're in sick boxes, not coffins. Yeah, they're spinning it a little bit, yeah. I, I mean, I, I had an incident um, many years ago now, but I was on a plane flying out of Chicago, and I was finishing a book tour and kind of happy. And Actually, I remember so clearly I had a Vanity Fair, which for me is kind of a guilty pleasure, reading about the rich people. And, and, and so, we're, so we're riding along, and all of a sudden there was this incredible noise. It was as if someone drove a minivan into the side of the plane, and we were in the air. 
and black smoke started coming out of those things. People were screaming, a plane is dropping really quickly. And I'm from Chicago, so I kind of knew where we were, which was not near the airport <laughs> at all. And uh, I just thought, oh my God. And, and at that time, I mean, I'd always imagined myself as the kind of person who in that situation would be very composed. And everyone, let's sing a song of gratitude. You know, <laughs> uh, but I wasn't that person at all. I, I just had, I literally, all I had in my mind was no, 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 no. Yeah. Um, and so I thought that was uh, kind of a, a moment of clarity, you know, to see that death, as much as we think about it, and certainly as much as I think about it and try to control my fear of it in my mind, when it comes, uh, if we have, well, if, if, maybe if we even have prepared, we won't be ready for it. And no doubt it will be somewhat different than we imagine it to be. So that was kind of in the book, one of the fun things was to say, can we make a, um, an afterlife that is sort of familiar, but not too familiar? Uh, if, you, you know, if we died and everything was just as we thought, that would be very surprising. You know, there's a great Stanley Elkins story called The Conventional Wisdom, do you know this one? It, a, a guy dies and he goes to heaven and there are pearly gates. And St. Peter is there, and he says, it looks like a very clean Disneyland. That's what he, and uh, so he walks up to St. Peter, and he, and he says, uh, I think I'm going to like it here. And St. Peter says, go to hell. And then he, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We should talk about the title of the book, um, because I think one of, the thing that, one of the things that signaled to the reader that this is no Victorian pastiche, but as a contemporary novel, is your use of a Tibetan term in the title, Lincoln and the Bardo. Would you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, Bardo is just a Tibetan term that means transitional space, and it's usually used to mean that tr transition that starts at the moment of your death and goes to whatever is next. So re in the Tibetan tradition, it would be reincarnation or uh, heaven or whatever. Um, so I, I, it helped me to, to keep that word in my mind, for example, to remind myself that it wasn't purgatory. I was raised Catholic in Chicago, which is like a double dose of Catholicism. And um, purgatory was just always the, the hard bench that you were to sit on until the end of days, you know, and kind of a static uh, thing. But in the, my understanding, limited understanding of the Tibetan tradition, uh, it's a little more workable. You know, you, you, uh, whatever you experience on the other side has a lot to do with whatever you're experiencing right this minute, which for me is a terrifying proposition because, you know, if you have monkey mind, which I do, your mind will go crazy. The, the texts say that when you, um, you, you know, in this state that we're in right now, we have these crazy, wonderful minds that are kind of dampened by the physicality of the body. Well, they say, yeah, when you die, the tether gets, caught, gets cut and your mind is like a wild horse. Whatever, you, uh, whatever your habits are now, they get multiplied by many millions of times. So that was an, a very useful concept for me when I thought about these ghosts. Uh, if, if somebody had a, uh, a regret in their life or a bitterness or a, a, a sticking place, then when they died, the potential was that that would be enlarged sufficiently to actually make them not go on to the next place. So in the book, the, my version of the Bardo is these people full of regret or uh, some of them are, uh, you know, sick with unrequited love or whatever. They, at the moment of their death, they kind of balk at the doorway and they just want to stay until they can get these issues resolved. So part of their, their, the, the humor, I guess, is that they, they don't want to say dead. That's rude. They're sick, you know, and they're in recovery or whatever. So, so um, yeah, so, the, so anyway, the Bardo, it just helped me remind myself to veer away from the too neat conceptions of the afterlife that might uh, cause me to be didactic, actually, you know, to sort of say, here's how we should live. I, I think we should live assuming that the afterlife is totally confusing and unknowable, 
and that that might make us try to control our, our minds and behavior now. When you were growing up Catholic, did you say prayers to get all those indulgences? Yes. How many Not did enough, you have? I, I forgot. I, we, well, what, actually, what I, and I, I guess this is universal Catholicism, but there was a, something called a scapular. Anybody know? That might, yeah, and, and what the nuns told us in the 60s was, you wear these things, and no matter what, you go to heaven. If you're wearing this at the time of your death, not a tie, but, but if, you, if you wear the scapular at the time of your me. death, you automatically go. What does it look like? It's, uh, it looks like a badge. It's very itchy. It, it, it actually has some kind of fur on the back, which I guess is the downside, but, you know, it seems worth it. Uh, so, um, yeah, so we would wear these. And then, you know, there would be the day when you'd rush out of the house without it, and all day you're walking around very carefully. So. <laughs> Yeah. Do you still have it with you? I don't have it with me. No, I'm living dangerously. No wonder you're embracing Tibetan yeah. <laughs> Buddhism. Just, my husband grew up Catholic in St. Louis, and he apparently has got 10,000 indulgences yeah. saved up, so he's okay. Yeah, I think 10,000. I'll be on the great. bench in purgatory, yeah. I suspect. Yeah. Do you feel differently about Lincoln now that you've done all this reading on him and written about him? I do. I am in love with him. I, you know, he's, um, you, I, I mean, every American is sort of auto in love with him just because we're told. But as you look into him, he's such an interesting person. You know, he, he went from, uh, in, let's say 10 years, he went from a kind of conventional uh, small town politician with all the sort of infused racism of the time and, and, uh, and then somehow just transformed himself into this person who, I think by the end of his life, he was about 100 or maybe 500 years ahead of the rest of the country in terms of equality and what the, uh, the democratic dream should look like, and he did it under the most incredible pressure, being insulted all the time, for, I mean, for his appearance, for his uh, country manners, for his crudeness, for his lack of intellect. Uh, so you fo if you follow him through those five years, it's, I, I think it's uh, an amazing spiritual ascension, is what, what you're seeing. And when you read uh, the way he behaved in small groups, he was always willing to sacrifice his own dignity if, if he could get the positive outcome. Uh, he, he was willing to be the butt of the joke. If somebody insulted him, he found a very almost zen way to kind of d deflect that and turn it around. And um, just a very, uh, and, and you know, I guess the thing I learned about him was it's not that he was born saintly. You know, he was very ambitious. Uh, they say a little cold, actually. He, he didn't have close friends. Um, and, and you can, when you read closely, you can see the torment and that, that it was not an effortless transition for him. But a very, very inspiring, really. And he's from Illinois, of course, isn't he? Land he, of Lincoln. He's, yeah, he's from he, Illinois. Yeah. So that's part of it as well. We got a, as kids, we got a lot of a lot of Lincolns to color in and all that kind of thing. But <laughs> but that didn't stop me from liking. Yeah. Um, was it one of the books you read? A compilation of all the insulting things that were said about Lincoln? Yes. There's a there's a, a book, the unpopular Lincoln, and it's a three or four hundred page book of all every rude thing that someone said to him just in that five year period, and uh, it's it's I mean it it actually makes you. Uh, respect any politician because, you know, with writers, I think you, I get one bad review and I, I clean the basement for three days. I just don't want to know. And these people who can be insulted every day and, and also misunderstood every day and, you know, and still try to do good in the world, it's kind of, kind of impressive. Yeah, he, he was really, uh, I, I, I mean, one narrative says that he was hated up until his death, actually. Uh, he won the war and died in kind of the same two-week period. And then, of course, there was a big revisionism that made him the kind of saint that he is now. We, I was talking with Paul Beatty yesterday, and he said it took him five years to write uh, the sellout. Mm -hmm. With you, how long would you say you worked on Lincoln and the Bardo? Well, it was four or, t or 20, depending on how you counted. It. it was four years of actual writing, and then 20 years of having the idea and trying it in different forms. But really, really four years of pretty intense uh, 
yeah, writing and rewriting. And with doubts along the way? Oh, yeah. I, I think doubts are, are very good for, you know, I mean, and I, I think actually I have an active voice, sort of an inner nun, you know, who says, uh, who points out along the way why the book is stupid and, un, <laughs> and, un, and un, undoable. And that's actually your best friend because you are kind of in the business of, um, uh, I, you know, I, I'm from the south side of Chicago. My dad was a salesman. So for me, writing, I, I talk about it pretty naturally in the language of sales. So you're the reader, I'm the writer. How you doing? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and I got a story for you. You know, once upon a time. And it, at that point, I think we're in a contract. And the contract is, I say, if I'm Kafka, I say, uh, Gregor Samsa woke to find he'd be transformed into a giant beetle. Now, one thing you don't say is, no, he didn't. But what you say is, okay, what do you got? You know? So then we're in an intimate contract where I'm, my job really is to anticipate your resistance. But of course, also to know when something would please you. But I think that, for me, that was a big breakthrough. I never had any success in writing until I was about 32. And the thing that clicked was that you're actually there, you know? That you're a person who's as intelligent and worldly and uh, curious and doubtful and frightened as I am. So we can actually, through writing, make a very intimate communication where sort of like my best self comes up through revision, your best self is lured out maybe through the quality of the intimate communication and we actually have a moment. So that, that made it sort of, uh, it made a path for me to understand how, how, how we're supposed to proceed. So when, when I write something like, uh, well, in early draft of this book, you'd have to say a ghost floated into the clearing. And when I, every time I wrote that, I'd imagine you going, come on. Ghosts? Oh, ghosts. Ugh. I know what ghosts are. They wear white sheets. Okay, okay. So part of the intimate communication became how can I communicate the idea of ghosts without insulting you or boring you? That's actually where the monologues came from. If I have a, a, a disembodied voice speaking and you maybe, it only slowly dawns on you that it's a ghost, then, I, then I'm being uh, respectful of you. So it's that kind of a thing. So, if, so I think part of the writer's job is to know very soon what stinks about your book. And then say, I know, I know. I, 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 I'm aware that I'm making a mistake here. Uh, there's a, there's a, a move in fiction, in reading, that I don't know there's a name for, but you know how when a, a writer will say something and you resist that moment? Mm -hmm. I might have to close this book. And then somewhere in the next page, the writer reclaims that. In other words, the writer knew that she was pushing you away. She had the confidence to stay there, and then she justified the thing that pushed you away. That's a really powerful bonding agent, I think. You know, so a writer takes a chance, uh, says, uh, maybe writes a first scene that's very uh, dark and negative, uh, and you think, ooh, I don't know if I wanna go there. Then the next beat is a beautiful, uplifting, luminous scene. It, it's as if she knew what you were thinking, and you know, so I think that's, that's the part that excites me, is the idea that you could have one, a communication of that much intimacy with another human being that you haven't met. Uh, and second of all, that in the process, you're actually improving your, yourself uh, by thinking better of your reader, that kind of mm -hmm. dynamic. Um, I think a lot of your work, and correct me if I'm wrong, explores the notion of fatherhood, hmm. what it means to have someone who you're responsible for, who you love, or have abnegated responsibility yes. for as in the mothers, Jade and Min and Sea Oak, yeah. the worst mothers in the world. But this book, in lots of ways, is about fatherhood. Lincoln is a father to a son, but also the notion of the presidency, because he's sending young men and boys into a war mm. that he is the authority to stop. 
and it's this huge moral conundrum for yeah. him. Was that at all in your mind when you were writing? Yes, in, in the sense that it's always in my, I mean, my life, uh, my wife and I got married, uh, well, we're on our 30th anniversary trip after we're going to Bora Bora after these, these festivals. Um, but it, 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 uh, our marriage uh, was completely transformative for me because I don't think before that I really understood how to care for another person. And I, I also didn't understand that my uh, shortcomings as a person were impediments to caring for another person. So my wife and I met in the romantic Syracuse ambiance, uh, Syracuse, New York, and uh, got engaged in three weeks. And, and I think that's when I became, uh, or at least started to have the potential to be a full human being because suddenly I, I loved. And I, and I could see that my uh, personhood had to be improved quickly in order to be present for our relationship. And then when our daughters came, it was, an, uh, you know, and we actually, we were, um, when our daughters were young, we were both writers, and we, we did, like, money? What's money? We, we don't need that. We're artists. So we were uh, quite poor when we were first married and had our daughters, and I was working as a tech writer at this engineering company. And, uh, you know, it, it wasn't the, the gulag by any means, but we got the first taste of that notion. Uh, I think Terry Eagleton said, capitalism plunders the sensuality of the body. So if you're an American and you don't have much, uh, and we don't have a very good safety net system there. And if you take advantage of the safety net, it's quite shameful, you know. So if you're in that position, uh, it's, it, it makes a lot of fear, actually. It changes the tenor of your life. There, uh, everything's high risk. Everything's very kind of dangerous. Um, so I think it, that was very important to me to have three people that I was loved dearly and was responsible for and could feel capitalism sitting on my chest, you know, every day. I think we all felt it. So uh, I think that what, what actually happened was certain moral centers in me got opened up. Before that, I'd been a pretty clever writer, but actually nothing hung in the balance for me when I was in my 20s. It didn't really matter. When Paula and the girls came, suddenly everything was morally charged. And that was, from an artistic standpoint, wonderful because everything mattered. You know, if you, you love this baby, there's a homeless person that homeless person was someone's baby, ergo, every utterance was important, every small humiliation had weight. Uh, so in a, in a sense, when we had our daughters, I think the world popped into correct moral focus. And then writing wasn't, uh, again, it became not so much a matter of pulling one over on the reader or doing fancy tap dancing, but the craft became, can I actually do justice to the feelings I'm actually having? related to those actual people, and can I make that beautiful assumption that if I'm feeling it, you're feeling it. Uh, that's, a, that's a project worthy of a life, you know, life's work. And yet without being sentimental, because you're not a sentimental writer. Right. I, well, actually, you know, I can be, and that's one of the, you know, I, I teach at Syracuse, and we get uh, 650 applications for six spots a year, so the students are off the charts. And one of the things you find is, uh, and this is true for me, when you're a young writer, you think the job is to get above yourself, master your crummy human tendencies, you know. Uh, and then at, when you work with writers that talented, you see, no, actually, what you want to do is sort of lure those tendencies of yours out into the open, let them start talking to each other. So I'm very, uh, as a person, very sentimental. But the first writer who really moved me was Khalil Gibran. I was a big Ayn Rand guy for a while, which is a form of sentimentalism, I think. Um, and I'm, but I'm also very, uh, have a very dark imagination, well, uh, kind of raised on George Carlin and Monty Python, and, uh, and I think maybe a little bit um, just a sardonic view of the world. So 
and, and I also have this, you know, I'm gonna talk really quickly, uh, kind of south side of Chicago hustler mind. Um, so I was very, you know, when I was young, I thought, ooh, that's not writing, that's, no one writes like that. So I, I actually had a period in high school where I, I actually practiced speaking more sonorously. You know, which I thought I would get a date. <laughs> but alas. Uh, but so for me, the, in writing, the big moment was when I said, okay, I, I, yeah, as Popeye said, I am what I am. Let it all out. Uh, be as sentimental as you want to be. If you find you're being too sentimental, just like riding a bike, you have to correct. What do you, I correct with the sardonic quality? So in the same story, you can have a very sort of uh, earnest, I would say somewhat sentimental uh, patch with a filthy joke right next to it. And I think what it can do sometimes is destabilize the reader. The reader is ready to dismiss you as a sentimentalist. The dirty joke comes along and they think, oh, wait a minute, I, I have to look again. Almost as if you had a beautiful forest and a dumpster. You know, if someone is showing you a picture of a beautiful forest, you say, oh, I, I know the kind of photographer he is. He's a, a lyrical nature photographer then the frame winds and you see the dumpster and suddenly you think, oh, hmm, I better stick with him a little longer. So, so one of the models I've developed at Syracuse is that you, what you want to do with your students is get them to, in one form or another, confess to who they are. Often it's just on the page, you know. Uh, and then encourage them to, to let those things out and get them playing back and forth. That's when they're going to get into uh, the desirable area, which is that space that nobody else could occupy. All of our students are, are amazing, wonderful writers. Our job is to push them up about 5% into that zone where they're doing that surprising thing that they didn't know they could do, but that actually is completely reflective of who they are, you know, three-dimensionally. That's a fun job. Absolutely. Yeah. And we were talking outside about an essay you wrote for The New Yorker last year. Um, it was about Trump, but there was a quote and I was interested. You described yourself as a sentimental middle-aged person who cherishes certain Copelandian notions about the essential goodness of the nation. And I wondered if you thought that essential goodness will ultimately triumph. Well, I, th I think, you know, uh, it's the essential goodness is there, and there's another thing that's essential, not goodness. And uh, I, I think probably they've always, well, they have been in America, always fighting, you know. I, I sometimes think that a country, and you know, when you travel, uh, you, you see this, a country is like a person in that a country has a personality. And as with people, personality is just the stepping forward of certain traits and the recession of others. So a national quality, um, and also that these, these qualities have positive and negative manifestations. So our country, you know, whenever I, I talk to somebody from another country and ask, what do you like about New York City, for example? The answer is almost always something like energy. Americans have so much energy, the country, and that's true. If you rotate energy, you get aggression. And if you keep rotating, you get violence. Uh, um, there's, a, there's a sort of a nice American naivete, let's say. Well, you rotate that and you get exceptionalism. You know? So I think the, um, our essential goodness is, is true, but you look at our history and there's an incredible nastiness too that I think uh, is unique actually to us. You know, the, our tendency to uh, oppress and violate and justify after the fact is kind of undeniable. It's not exclusive to us, but we're kind of good at it. Uh, so I, th I think now, I, I, you know, um, of course at home, Trump is, that's all people talk about. The dentist talks about it, you know, dogs are talking about it, everything. Uh, but, and I, I try to remind myself that if somebody 
acts like they know what is happening, they don't. This is new, it's really new. And it's definitely a form of various American tendencies blossoming into their fullness. And uh, I think so much of it comes, it's confusing because the mayhem and the chaos crosses traditional political lines. In other words, if we had talked two years ago, um, I would have told a story about our, you know, our family's uh, difficult beginnings in Rochester and poverty and Terry Eagleton. And I, my conclusion would have been there's something wrong in America, which is rank materialism, uh, incredible income uh, inequality, uh, a, a kind of a corporate, corporatism as a religion, and a disregard for uh, working people. That I, and, and I would settle things. Those things are still true. They're contributory to the Trump phenomenon. But the, that movement got in there and perverted it and laced over some other American tendencies to racism and dog whistling and uh, xenophobia. So I, I think whatever your politics, th this is one way in which this is a great moment for the country. Whatever your politics were before, you will go into a very confusing roundhouse. And when we come out the other end, it's gonna be a, a, a different country. And I, my hope is, and I, I did a big tour there and talked to a lot of young people. I think it's gonna be the, the death knell of this xenophobic, exclusionary, uh, hateful mindset. I think it's gonna, it's, this is gonna be the goiter that, that burst, uh, but I don't actually, I don't know. It's, mm -hmm. yeah. it's interesting you're talking about looking at your own society, because I wonder if we don't do that enough here, that we should really think about the, what we talked about in the festival forum the other night, of both what's great about your own society, but then also the shadow, as you say, you turn something and, and maybe there's a darker side of it that yeah. you have to, confront as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's actually it relates to writing. You, I think that the most mature tendency is not to negate either thing. Uh, American uh, energy, American violence, okay, they're connected. Th then you can start to work with it a little bit. You can say, uh, is there a way that we could uh, enjoy the energy and suppress the violence? If you, if you deny that they're connected, then you're in a, a death spiral because you're gonna be continually denying the truth that's right in front of you, you know. We're going to go in a little while to, uh, to audience questions. We're not going right away, but in a few minutes, I just wanted to uh, <coughs> say me, to you, if you are thinking about asking a question, when the lights go up, if you'd make your way to the microphone, that would be really good. Um, I'm just gonna put my little glasses on again, George. I like them. Do you? Yeah. My brother-in-law's an optometrist, so they're Gucci. Yeah. <laughs> Give me his number. I'm tired of looking at my questions and having my glasses on. I'm throwing them away. So there's a lot of writing students in the audience today. Well, there should be. <laughs> God, God bless them. <laughs> and you've already given a lot of good advice, but would you talk about writing short stories a bit? Because I do regard mm. you as a master of the form. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I, th I think it's the hardest, I mean, it's a very difficult form. And I think the, uh, you know, I have this, uh, there was a, a point in my life when I made a kind of a jump, and the jump was partly that before the jump, I thought the writer's job was to control the material and sort of almost lecture. You know, I have a, a truth I want to tell you. Please sit there while I pull up the dump truck with my notions and drop it on you. Uh, so, for, so I liked Hemingway a lot, and I would read Hemingway, and then I would I agree with his worldview, and now I'll make a parallel construction. So the, the problem with that was all the control was with the writer. Uh, the, the, the reader, again, is, it's not an intimate relationship. It's a condescending relationship. It's kind of like going on a date with index cards. You know, you... 7 p.m., ask about her mother. Uh, I mean, wh well, why would you do that? You do it because you're anxious, basically. You want it to turn out well. 
but by over-controlling it, you're dooming it to failure. So uh, there was a point where I realized that actually, at least in this story, I'm not sure about the novel, but in the story, part of the job is to really and truly not know where it's headed and let the text talk to you. There's a kind of a troika of, of mantra that I have. One is Donald Barthamy said, uh, the writer is that person who embarking on her task has no idea what to do. That's, and then Gerald Stern, which I'll, I'll clean up for the audience, but he said, uh, if you set out to write a poem about two dogs making love, and you write a poem about two dogs making love, then you wrote a poem about two dogs making love. <laughs> yeah, and then, uh, then Einstein uh, upped the ante and he said, he said, no worthy problem is ever solved in the plane of its original conception. So that one really rings true in story world. I think what you do is you start something for fun, you know, something that has some energy to it. Maybe you have some notion of where it's going, but then the critical moment for me is when the story says, no, 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 no. I am not gonna do what you say because that's gonna be boring. And in fact, you know, readers, I think we have to assume that readers are about 15% more clever than we are, right? Because they, uh, if you start in a direction, the reader is very good at positing where you're headed. And it, the reader is very disappointed if you just do that thing. So for me, a lot of the process is to start with a lot of confidence and then hope that the confidence will be undercut. Uh, Stuart Dybeck, the Chicago writer, says the story is always talking, but you have to learn to listen to it. So that, I think, is the trick of the story. The story has um, the surface story, you know, Romeo meets Juliet or, or you know, Akaki Akakievich wants an overcoat. Uh, and of course, we mostly are tending to that. Our attention is on that. But meanwhile, there's an understory that, that's coming. And we don't even know what that is, but um, there's a beautiful moment, which I think is sometimes called the epiphany, but where, where both those stories meet. And I think in the best stories, the writer realizes what that understory is just as it happens, just whoa, and as the reader does it, that beautiful moment where uh, the story reveals itself, almost like a rainbow shoots out of its back or something. You see, I was there all along. Uh, but that effect is, you know, you can't calculate it. You actually have to, um, I always think of the word abide. You have to rewrite, 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 keep your eye on the, the actual progress. Am, am I telling the truth? Are my descriptions apt? Am I avoiding cliche? And it's almost like if you, you know, if we concentrated our attention on this table, uh, a reindeer would come out from backstage. Be beautiful, beautiful animal. But if we look at it, it gets frightened and runs away. So then the job becomes just look at the table. And you sometimes in a story, you're aware of this beauty coming, you know. But if you can just discipline yourself to not, not spook it, it'll, it'll come out on its own. So. But again, for me, it's all about, I mean, that all sounds nice, but it's, it's about line-to-line -line revision is really where it, it happens. And I think that's most of the students I know, if I have any breakthrough with them, it's just getting them to revise 40% more than they normally would have. And then they go, oh, they come in and you can see them, their eyes are all lit up, and they, revision! Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Try that again. <laughs> I know you're a big fan of Grace Paley. You mentioned mm. Stuart Dybeck as well. I, if people have not read Stuart Dybeck, he is a, a really great writer, and he's often was called he, a writer's writer. Was he writer. when you were there? The, yeah, he, he, he oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he's great. Yeah. yeah. But um, Grace Paley, I know you've written about her, a truly great American writer as yeah, well. Yeah. Any other short story writers you think people should absolutely read? Well, the, the one I go back to again and again is the Russian, um, Isaac Babel. Uh, he's somebody that Toby Wolf introduced me to. And he's just, um, he's got Hemingway's economy, uh, and, and he was just a, you know, a, a phrase meister. You know, he, he, he worked on very close, close level. But also he's got what Hemingway, I think, maybe didn't have, which is an ability to be really goofy and lyrical and kind of, um, you know, I always felt with Hemingway, towards the end, he had so much control of his persona. Uh, 
so you get the sense that there would be certain truths that would uh, come to him that he c couldn't present. And Babel doesn't have that quality. He lived a very wild life. He was actually killed uh, by the Stalinists at about 40, you know. But he, but he had, um, I, I, his mindset seemed to be, if it occurs, it's sacred. And if it's sacred, I should find a way to express it in language. And I'll discover what that language is in process. There was no, again, not that, that feeling of controlling the material, but opening yourself up to the world and then saying language is a way that I can pay tribute to the world, that just as it is. You know. George, this has been a really fantastic oh, thank session. You so much. I think we'd all be happy to sit here for another hour, but there's two things. One is that I realized that my glasses are Dolce & Gabbana, not Gucci. I didn't really want to mislead <laughs> oh. you about that. Um, yeah. And the second thing is that George will be signing books outside after this session. Please all join me in thanking George Saunders. Thank you. Thank you so much. Our 2017 Auckland Writers Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website writersfestival.co.nz